this is Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. The next episode is one of my favorites and one that involved a lot of barbecue and a lot of music. Our production team traveled to Austin, Texas to attend the annual South by Southwest Festival and interview Melinda Gates. Actually, she grew up Melinda French in Dallas, Texas, a young girl who loved computers. In 1987, she landed her first job at a newly public company called Microsoft, where she met the man who would later become her husband, co-founder Bill Gates. Over the last three decades, Bill and Melinda Gates have become two of the world's most prolific philanthropists. Now, Melinda is focusing on investing her money and her might on empowering women everywhere, especially in technology. Here's my conversation with Melinda Gates, co-founder of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You were born in Dallas, the second of four children, and I'm curious what it was like growing up Melinda French. I was very lucky because my parents told all four of us, you will be college going, and we think that's important, and they explained why, because of the opportunities. And they said, not only that, even though we could tell it wasn't going to be easy for my parents to put us through college, we will figure out a way as a family. And so they said to me, you can choose any college in the nation that you can get into, and we'll figure out a way to pay for it. Your father was an aerospace engineer. You also studied computers. How did you discover computers as a young girl? Yeah, so I was fortunate. So I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. And um, one of the teachers there, the math teacher, who I really admired a lot and worked with a lot, she went to a conference and she saw these Apple IIs had just come out and she was so excited about them. She came to the hen principal, who happened to be a nun, and said, we have to get these for the girls. And so she got uh, several of the girls who were in math class and asked us if we wanted to sign up for her new computer class she was going to start. And that's how I got hooked. You went on to Duke, you got a bachelor's in computer science, you got an MBA at Duke as well, and this is when women were better represented among computer science students. What was your experience like? It was exciting. I mean, I, I loved going into it, but I did notice that after I got past the freshman class, there were just fewer and fewer and fewer women. And um, that was just how it was. And I learned to just program with the guys. You went on to Microsoft. That's where you got your first job in 1987. Paint the picture of those early years at Microsoft. I was so excited when I got this job um, because it was, I knew they were on the forefront and I believed in what they were doing. And because I had this technology background, I could move up on the business side very quickly to manage whole teams of coders, uh, people in user education, marketers, program managers. I had a decision to make though a few months after I was at the company because um, it was tough. I was used to working in very all-male environments in college, but it was, it was abrasive and, and combative. And I thought for a while, maybe I'll just quit and go somewhere else. I can get a great job anywhere else. I wasn't worried about that. But I thought maybe there's something about me that just doesn't fit. And it took me a while to realize, no, it's this culture that I don't want to be like that. And so I tried on being myself and uh, it actually ended up being very successful for me. You met Bill at Microsoft. Uh, you got married in 1994. You left Microsoft in 1996. And you have since become one of the world's most active and generous philanthropists. And a core part of that work involves empowering women and girls. Were there specific experiences or people who helped your, shape your, your thinking on women's issues in particular? 
Well, I've been lucky enough now to travel for over 17 years in philanthropy and I travel all over the world. I'm in the developing world a lot, I'm in Asia, I'm in Africa, and who shaped my views were the women I talked to on the ground. And what I was hearing in their conversations at the local village level, sitting in the dirt on a mat, was the same thing I was hearing when I would hear the news in the United States about CEO underrepresentation on boards, right, of women on boards or women CEOs. And when I initially went into philanthropy, I thought, I'm going to kind of stay away from this women's issue, women's in health, some of the women's issues, because maybe those are the soft issues. But what I've since learned is that those are actually the fundamental and the hard issues. And if we don't solve those, we won't get major change for the world. So my aspirations and Bill's aspirations, whether it's health, whether it's decision making, whether it's economic opportunity, we won't get there as a world if we don't make the right investments in women. In computer science, women hit their peak, earning 37% of degrees in 1984. That has since plummeted to 18% and has been flat for the last decade. Similar numbers when it comes to the number of jobs that women are holding in this industry. You lived this. What went wrong? It looks like when the gaming industry turned, when the, pro, the games became more male games, more shoot 'em up. If you think about the earlier games that I played, Pac-Man, the adventure games, the Atari games, Breakout, they were pretty gender neutral. But when you got in these very combative games that were very male-centered, and more and more men got into the industry, to women it just started to feel unwelcoming. I think when you get that flywheel going, where an industry becomes single-sex focused, it's actually, then it feels unwelcoming to women, so they might join it, but then if they don't see other people around them, we all know people look for role models around them, but if they don't find it, then they say, well, I want to get out. And so we think that's probably what went wrong in the computer industry. How did you encounter bias throughout your career? You know, it's interesting. I encountered it far more in industry than I did inside of Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft was growing by leaps and bounds when I got there. I felt like I had every opportunity open to me if I, if I did well, you know, if I performed well as a female. But in industry, I ran into it all the time. I'd go present and you could tell, like I would show up at a user group that is 95% male. And they'd be like, this woman's gonna present to us? What does she, what could she possibly know about this product? But as soon as I opened my mouth, it was clear I knew the product in depth because I wasn't just there to sell it. I was managing the developers who are writing the code for Pete's sake. I knew what was in that code. So I, you know, I would see it on people's faces. I would bump up against it and um, I just would learn to push through it. James Damore, an engineer, was recently fired at Google for writing a memo in which he claimed that men are more biologically suited to computers than women. Do you think that mistaken assumption or toxic assumption is part of the problem. I think we all have bias and I think that we need to get under the hood and figure out how do you create change by designing it out of the system. And yes, I think if you're in one culture that looks a particular way, uh, where it looks like only a white male can get ahead who went to an Ivy League university, you're going to bake more bias into the system. Whereas if we design a system where there are different pathways in, we look at the environment, how to design it out, you look at how do you spawn innovation for women and women of color, you'll start to actually change the system. In the last few years, you've really recommitted to being a champion for women in technology in particular. Is there a specific moment or reason when you realized someone had to speak up for women in tech and that that person 
could be you. Yes, I think, you know, just a few years ago when I just, I'm, I've been disappointed for quite some time about the numbers going down in terms of computer science degrees for women. And I kept thinking there would be a woman to speak out or women who would speak out more. And there are women speaking out. But I hadn't honestly put together my background of realizing, well, I was in that space. I've, I've always cared about computer and tech. Um, but wow, maybe I should use the, my voice behind this. If there are places in the United States where we're bumping up against barriers and we're not getting far enough, that also has repercussions for the world. So we have to make sure low-income countries, middle-income countries, and high-income countries all become equal for women. And I realized this was a place where I had some, something I really wanted to say. The other thing I'll say about tech is, I see, I not only believe, I see how tech is transforming our society. I see the changes that are happening now and that are coming. And if we don't have women and underrepresented people of color at the table, we will bake into those systems bias, particularly artificial intelligence. It's gonna be such a reality the next decade and beyond. And if we bake the bias in now, trying to undo it will be too hard. I thought, my gosh, when I saw what was going on in AI and there are no women at the table, I can name two, I thought, this is a problem and we've got to do something about it. Why is it important to have more female engineers, female entrepreneurs, female venture capitalists? Well, because if they have a seat at the table and if they're writing the code and they're doing designing, they are, first of all, they're representing all of society, so they see pro different problems and opportunities, quite frankly, in society. And then they say, okay, when we create a voice for an AI system, it shouldn't just sound like a young male's voice. It should, it should be able to recognize an African-American voice. It should be able to recognize a Hispanic voice, an Asian voice. They see society differently because of where they grew up and the, the experiences they have of people in their own networks. And so they will help us design those products to make sure they're ones that represent all of us and that aren't biased, that work for everybody, not just a segment of the population. You're listening to my conversation with Melinda Gates. Up next, we'll talk about the Me Too movement and why Gates is on a mission to fix the gender gap in venture capital. I'm Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. You founded Pivotal Ventures in 2015. When you, when you started Pivotal Ventures, what is the mission that you set out to achieve? It was really to figure out what are the issues that American women face where there are still barriers and how could we go about knocking some of those down. So I'm not finished saying yet the places that we are going to make investments, but there are places where I feel there are some societal needs where government might not fix it or private sector might not fix it on their own. So Pivotal Ventures invests in venture capital firms mm -hmm. and is essentially an, a limited partner or a fund to fund where you know these are the funds that invest in the people who are investing in the people who are mm -hmm. creating the future, right? So when did you first believe that limited partners or the investors that fund venture capital mm -hmm. firms have a role to play here? We don't have enough women founder CEOs who are getting funding. So basically less than 2% of VC funds go to women, less than 1% go to women of color. And so in this innovation space, I said to myself, what's the best way to use 
capital to move things for women. And that's when I started to say, okay, I actually need to move some money into the venture capital space and I want to do it smartly. I mean, the first goal is to make money. I'm not putting my money out as a social impact. I'm putting it out to make money. But I wanted to go behind funds like Aspect Ventures that's run by Teresa Gao and Jennifer Fonstadt who are looking at these opportunities and they have a thesis around, my gosh, there are so many opportunities there if we go towards funding some of these women businesses. You mentioned that you care about returns. You're not doing this to have an impact or it's not a handout, certainly. Some LPs have said to me, all we care about is returns. Some of the best investors may not be the best people, but they have the best returns. What do you have to say to those people? I have to say you're investing in what you know. And so you need to look at what trends are coming in the nation and how you're going to address them. Women are 85% of consumer dollars spent. Women control 70% of financial decisions in the house. So if you're not investing in products that go towards females or a women-led uh, company, you're missing an opportunity because you just don't see it. And I would say the same thing about underrepresented and minorities, because after about 2044, this country, what we think of minorities today, when you add up all of those groups, they're going to be the majority. So you're leaving money on the table. You're not in the deal flow. So good luck 10 years from now. How much of an impact can LPs have and should LPs have in galvanizing change? I think we definitely need LPs who start to make those investments. And I think they not only need to make investments, they need to open their networks. Because if you look at a woman, she often doesn't have the same network into the deal flow, right? Or into the level of funders. Same thing for underrepresented people of color. They don't have a seat at the table or when they go in, people don't understand their product. So it's being willing to take a risk a few times. I interviewed Ev Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, for my book, and I asked, you know, do you think online harassment and trolling would be such a problem today if women had been present at the beginning of this company? And he said, you know what? I don't think it would be such a problem. We weren't thinking about how, I, how our product could be used to send rape threats or death threats. We were thinking about amazing things that could be done with Twitter. How different do you think the world or the internet might be if women had been present when some of these early platforms were created? I think if there was a woman there at the table, and it would take several, right, who had their real voice and their real power, they'd say, okay, well, wait a minute, have we thought about this? Have we thought about you know, the rape scenario, because if you look at the number of women who faced violence, even in the United States, or some form of sexual harassment, it is huge. So it's very hard for me to imagine if there was a woman at the table who really had power, that she wouldn't bring those issues up. Do you worry that the Me Too movement could backfire? Sure. I think there are places where it's already backfiring, and we have to be very careful. So when you separate, if men's and women's groups decide to separate in terms of when they have meetings, or men won't take a meeting alone with a woman because they're afraid of being accused of something, yeah, that's not good. And so we have to have the real dialogue about what could create change. And what I'm seeing with the Me Too movement is we're still at a point of reckoning. There is still more to come out because what you're seeing is it's industry by industry by industry. And so that reckoning has to happen. And then I think we'll start to get the, okay, what do we do about it? We're still in that reckoning, recognizing phase. And then we'll come to what are the responsibilities and the solutions. So you think there will be more stories? Oh, yes. I, th I think undoubtedly. I mean, you're seeing it. it's, it's still playing out industry by industry. We haven't rolled through all the industries yet. But when I see something like Time's Up, I'm incredibly optimistic, whether you're a farm worker, a restaurant worker, in, working in the hotel industry, any of them. And so you actually have a place to go to actually get help, not just 
bemoan the fact this has happened to you to a close friend, but you could actually go for legal help to have some recourse, that will make a difference. How do you root out bad behavior in a way that's not draconian? I don't think there's one solution that fits all. I think we're putting a lot on a, on a sole woman in a tech team or in a tech culture to make change. It's too much. It needs to be part of management and has to be part of the board level conversation. And then it has to be measured all throughout the company. How are we actually doing on these factors? And I think that's really the only way you're going to get change. Do you think Silicon Valley can fix this? the problem of not having enough women at the table. I know Silicon Valley can fix this. They just have to decide they want to. Look, they've, they're one of the most innovative, amazing places. Look at the technology that's come out of there that didn't exist before. So they put their brains to this problem and they get serious about it and they put their money behind it. Yeah, they can absolutely change it. That was Melinda Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Up next, Melinda Gates tells us about her message to the president and whether she has any political ambitions herself. I'm Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. As you've said, you've been focused on gender for many years. What about our children? Video games are still incredibly violent. You know, social media has all of these problems. If we don't change this now, what are the dangers? The dangers are that you will amplify some of the things that go on naturally, that used to go on just in the playground, or the kid would bump or bully the person in the hall. And so I think you'll end up seeing some of these societal problems uh, because even though the technology was totally created for good, the kids are finding ways to use it and exploit it that adults never, ever see. I understand you've decided not to allow your kids to have phones until high school. Is that true-ish? Well, I think you have to, as a family, you have to always decide, first, what are our values around this? What's great about it? But where are some of the places there, there could be pitfalls? And then you have to set up rules for your family for where you are right now. We have both a daughter who's a senior in college, a son who's a senior in high school, and a daughter who's a freshman in high school. The difference between where the tech is for my freshman in high school versus my senior in college when she was a freshman is night and day different. Instagram didn't exist. Snapchat didn't exist. So the rules I have around that are new because I didn't have to create them up here. And you have to decide what you value and say to your kids, I, I get that our family rules might look differently than that family or that family, but this is what we value. And so this is why you won't come to the dinner table with your phone on the table or in your pocket. We value your sleep. We value your mental health. You mentioned that you put your phone outside the door at 9.30 p.m., your phone is off. We all benefit from being off of our devices, and we have to role model that for our children. If we don't role model it, we can't ask them to do something differently. You know, think about looking at yourself first. Anytime you're pointing your finger this way, you gotta look at the three fingers that point at you and say, what are the rules I need to put in for myself first and then have that tricky conversation with my kid. And the conversations aren't easy, but you gotta take them on because they're too important. How do we make space at work for parents and families? I think we pass really good 
paid family leave policies, both at the state and the federal level. I think there's sort of this misnomer that we think, oh, a lot of people get paid family leave today. Well, the truth is in the private sector, only 15% of people get paid family leave. So we have to have good policies in the private sector. We have to have good state level policies. There are five states today and Washington, D.C. that have a policy, a paid family leave policy, and then we need one at the federal level. In the annual letter that you and Bill wrote, you said you wish President Trump would treat women especially with more respect when he speaks and when he tweets. What does the president's treatment of women say about how we as a society treat women? And do you think his example could set us back? I think that the president, no matter who he or she is, has a responsibility to be a moral authority in the country and to be a role model. And so I think some of the views today coming out on Twitter from this president don't represent our views of women in society. I'm in the school system a lot, all over the country. And what principals and staff and teachers are teaching the kids is what's important in this country about not bullying, about treating people equally, having respect. But you've got to role model that at the top. And we have just made, he has just made their job a lot harder. Your name, Bill's name, have been floated as vice presidential candidates. Do either of you have political aspirations? Zero. <laughs> None. We like where we are. We like the jobs that we're doing. We absolutely want to work, though, with whatever administration comes into that office. We need to. The U.S. government is too important around the world, and our role in the world is too important not to work with them. And so we feel like we can work hand-in-hand -hand with them in partnership through the foundation. You've both said you're going to continue to keep working with this administration because you think working together is important, even though, you know, uh, in some places you may disagree. Um, aside from his treatment of women, what are your biggest concerns about this administration? This administration is making major budget cuts, proposing major budget cuts in foreign aid. The message that sends to the rest of the world about do we care about others and our ability to create markets to help countries move, ha fulfill their aspirations of moving from low to middle income country and create markets for ourselves, we're pulling back on that. So that is a big concern of my husband's and I. In the last year, diversity has finally become part of the national conversation. How do you feel about the conversation that we're having? And do you think it will lead to lasting change? It's about time. Um, so I'm relieved to see that we're having the conversation. And I think it's going to be up to us as a nation to decide where we take that. But I think the fact that you have that conversation coming up at the same time you have this reckoning with the Me Too conversation, people are getting their voice. When you look at the fact that over 80 of the candidates running for governor are females this time. We've only ever had 39 female governors in the history of our country. When you look at over 400 of the candidates for U.S. House of Representatives are women. When you see that over 50 candidates for the Senate are women, women are coming out in droves. And guess what? They don't all look the same, which I think is fantastic. I like to think success is when a woman engineer or a woman CEO is normal, or a woman running for president or being president is normal. Will that happen in our lifetimes? Yes. Absolutely it will. And I completely agree with you. When you have women at the top, and the reason it's so important is they role model. Other little girls can look up and go, I could be like her who's president. I could be like that movie producer. I could be like that director. I could be like that person who's creating amazing content. And so 
those role models important, but you're starting, you're really seeing it happen. The sparks are all there and we need to help keep it going. And a woman president too, do you think that'll happen? In my lifetime, definitely, I think that'll happen. Melinda Gates, thank you so much for joining us on Bloomberg Studio 1.0. It's been great to have you. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Danielle Culbertson is our managing editor. Special thanks to Capital Factory for hosting this interview. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.